0: I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I'll be reading verses 11 through 18. 11 through 18. We continue on the theme that we started a couple of weeks ago prior to last week, which was the week Sunday after Presbytery. I preached from Psalm 42 and 43. This evening we go back to this topic for a time about wisdom and death, and then finishing this chapter on the superiority of wisdom over folly. I'll begin reading in verse 11 of chapter 9. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, the bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. For man also does not know his time, like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. This wisdom I have also seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it, besieged it. And built great snares around it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that same poor man. Then I said, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Words of the wise, spoken quietly, should be heard." Rather than the shout of a ruler of fools, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, even now we ask you this evening that we might turn our attention again, as we have done already this morning, to the preaching of your word. For in it we find life. In it we find wisdom. In it we find instruction. For not only how we are to live, how we are to think, but how we might please you with the time that we have. And so, with whatever time we've been given, not fearing death, knowing that we have a great inheritance that is to come, take every moment, seize each day for the furthering and the glorying of your name. We pray this in your name. Amen. As we come to God's word, it is right that we find ourselves, if need be, a reorienting the structure and nature even of our lives. Wisdom does this. One of the things that you recognize as your children get older, is the power of hormones as they get older. They go from these little round faces, higher-pitched voices, and then they begin to develop a jaw. Men, an Adam's apple, a deeper voice. This thing changes in them that irrevocably alters even their skeletal muscular structure. Wisdom is the means or it is the it is the element that adds maturity to an immature life the more you get wisdom the stronger your skeletal muscular structure of the spiritual life is and it leaves you transformed and Solomon would have us no longer be children but to grow up in godliness and so in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, he continues in these, these uh, two verses at the end of one section and then in these verses 13 through 18, some perspective not only on death and the sovereignty of God, but how we are prone to not listen to the voice of wisdom, but to the voice of folly and what the end or telos of those two ways are. Tonight I want to begin closing out this section on wisdom and death that universal constant in all people's lives and how we can sort of put a pin in that idea and then move on to the next one about where we see salvation lying not lying as in telling a lie but where it's located what is the locus of salvation how do we find it how is it communicated to us well it comes through wisdom and so those are the two points, that one universal constant, firstly, and then secondly, where salvation lies. Now, let's look at that one universal constant. In chapter 9, verses 11, 12, we find a repetition of what we've seen in chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. In verse 2 and 3, we read, all things come alike to all. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the clean and the unclean. <clears throat> Excuse me. To him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, and is the good so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that no one that I'm sorry that one thing happens to all. And that is you die. This is the good news of the gospel. (laughs) This is the perspective that we need. And then in verse 11 and 12, he builds upon that. Not only is it the rich and the poor, I'm sorry, the righteous and the unrighteous, those who sacrifice and those who do not, but not to the rich, to the fast, to the strong, to the fed. It's the same. I returned and saw under the sun that... The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. Now, two weeks ago, I made this point. We need to know how to read Ecclesiastes. Solomon is not saying, the race is not to the swift, so don't try to run hard. He is saying this, your running hard does not mean you don't die. Nor does strength prevent death, nor does being well-fed prevent death, nor does riches, nor does the favor of men. Time and chance happen to them all. Chance, of course, doesn't mean fate in some impersonal way, but to us, what it looks like is it all happens, or death happens to us all. It appears as though it is chance, verse 12, is a building on that idea. For man also does not know his time. Like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. It's the same end for all. Now Solomon is not saying all lives are the same, but rather all lives end the same. He's not saying wealth is immoral and that poverty is righteous. And in a moment, he's also not saying that a poor man's speech is inherently righteous and a wealthy man's wisdom is in, or a speech is inherently folly. Solomon isn't building a biblical intersectional pyramid. That is not what he is doing here, if y'all are familiar with that sort of modern language. What he is saying is this. However you run, Everyone's race ends. Death is coming. Now, this, for some people, is news. And when I say that, what I don't mean is that not all people, everyone is aware of death, but I don't wake up on Monday consciously thinking every day that this is my last day. Now, there may be some people who do, and that is a terrible way to live. It is quite morbid. But I don't live constantly under the fear that this moment is my last moment. And again, Solomon is not telling us that that is how we ought to think with this sort of morbidity, this sorrow, this Eeyore kind of existence. In fact, what he says is that the Christian, the wise man, is to see two things always, death and duty that we are called to see that death is coming and until that death comes we are to be busy we are to be taken up with the work of wisdom and there are places where solomon says verse 10 whatever your chapter 9 whatever your hand finds to do do it with your might for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave do it now And even more optimistically in verse 9, just prior to that, live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Vain means temporary. Live it up. Now, don't live it up as the world where you don't act like you have a wife if you have a wife. (laughs) This is the way the world wants to live. They want to eat, drink, and be merry in order to push off the reality of death. No, the Christian eats... And drinks and is merry, all while having one eye on the grave and one eye in glory. Or really, one eye on the grave and one eye beyond the grave to glory. What Calvin would call contemplating the future life in his golden booklet of the true Christian life. And there are times when God brings to us challenges, yes, even death, misery, and pain, in order to remind us of our true end. We will die. Um, Every time we go to visit my parents now, there is in their basement a series of shelves of things that they have collected over the years. Uh, My dad is not a hoarder. And so every time we go, he takes me down to the basement to shop. (laughs) It's really bad if he takes my wife down there like, no, no, because actually I end up taking more stuff than she does. (laughs) And we always end up coming home with more than we took. And he's smiling, and I'm crying. What is he doing? He knows at some point when he goes, someone's going to have to deal with all that stuff. He knows it. So what is he doing? He is living now for that day. What he is doing is he's living generationally. He's trying to bless his children so that one day when he's gone and we have to settle the estate, I don't have six waffle irons to get rid of. (laughs) Just wait. If I'm still here and my parents go, there'll be a massive flea market, I'm sure, somewhere with all of these things that we're trying to get rid of. We need to live in a generational way. Job did this. There are other men in Scripture that are examples of living in such a way that they are investing not only in their lives, but in the lives of those who come later. Now, Solomon says earlier, you don't even know what's going to happen with that stuff. You don't know who will take what you have, and will they use it wisely? But you know this, that there is a hard stop for this life. Now, there is a life that is to come. We are immortal beings But what we do in this life echoes. It reverberates. It has an effect on the life that is to come, not only for ourselves, but those who come after us. And the way we ought to look at it is this. Death is a spring waiting to be sprung. It feels like chance. It really does. There are those lives where... You die in a bed surrounded by your loved ones and you sing hymns and psalms and you just, it's almost like a smooth transition from this life to the next. What a great way to go. But you know, those stories are only after told, they're only told after the fact. You don't know. You don't know how it will happen. You just don't know. You could want that kind of death, and you may go out in a blaze of glory. You may go out in a car accident, a stroke. Who knows? We do not know. Now, God knows, but for us, what it feels like is a trap, a snare has been sprung, and evil comes upon us suddenly. And so all that we do all that we eat, those whom we love, all that we drink, the jobs that we have, the cars that we buy, the stuff that's in our basement, the stuff that's in our garage or in our attic or in our closets, at some point it will be left alone and we will be gone. And for many people, that idea is terrifying. Solomon is saying... It's the most common event in human history, aside from birth. (laughs) Birth, death. Birth and death. And why is it that these two events, though they are the most common events in human history and they happen to us all, why are both such epic events? Because life is precious, because life is sacred. It is given to us by God and it is taken away from us by God and every single human knows that in their heart of hearts. And we are living under the reality that we are not in absolute control. And so death is for us a spring waiting to be sprung. But despite this, As those who have every confidence in eternal life, we are called to enjoy and fight for life. We're told that early. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love. Work with all your might. Eat, drink, mow the grass, and then sit in the yard and smell it if you can. And just revel in the good gifts of God. Look at your children playing or your grandchildren and think about the many blessings of God and say, I've got a good life. But if you are worried about the day of your death or the fact that you are not in control, all of that is just bitterness and you can't enjoy it. And this is for us, I think, oftentimes where Christians lean away instead of lean into it. What I mean by that is this. In an age plagued by sin and death, every age of men, but especially in this age that we know, because we haven't lived in the other ages, you can only know what you're living in, we see around us a group of people who are catatonic. They are overwhelmed with fear of what is coming. Noah knew the flood was coming, but he was not afraid. Why? Because he had an ark. I know I keep going back to this Noah thing. It has struck me deeply. We know that we are safe. What have we to be afraid of? We ought to lean into the fact that we are creatures, not the creator, that we are afflicted by sin but redeemed, we need to lean into those two realities with loud singing. In fact, there's some of those epic moments in a, in a book or in a film where there is this hero, and as he's going to death, he does so while singing or chanting, screaming at the top of his lungs. And we look at that and go, man, what a way to die. <laughs> I'm glad that's not me. But we kind of want that, don't we? We want that resolve. We want that courage. That despite the reality of death, we can enjoy life because God has blessed us with such blessings that they are not the culmination. They are a taste. I mean, I want you to think of it this way. I know I use a lot of food illustrations. But think about walking through the kitchen And you're preparing, or this wonderful soup is being prepared. And all of these spices are being added to the pot. And over time, as it's boiling and those those spices are marinating and marrying together, it creates this smell that just wafts through the house. That's as good as it gets on earth. But what heaven is, you sit down and you actually eat. That's how I want you to think of the blessings of God. We sing that, right? When we've been there 10,000 years, we've only just begun to sing God's... I can't remember. I I have to be singing it to remember. Even though we've been there 10,000 years, we've just begun. We've just begun. Think of the glories that await in such a way that as believers, we can look at death and say, yeah, (laughs) I'm ready for the promotion. I'm ready. And it's hard to be ready because it requires courage, and it requires a life that is lived as though we are going to die. All right, how does this happen? How do we live ready? How do we prepare? That's the second point, where salvation lies. So Solomon uses the language of warfare, and he does it to introduce the idea that while the world is busy building siege works To deal with their problems, there lies within that little city a man with a voice, but no one will listen to him. That voice, like a voice that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Or like the prophets of old who were killed, who were silenced. Or like those truth tellers of our day who get banned on YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. The world does not in fact love truth. What they love is to build siege works of their own delusions. So this is what we read. This wisdom I have also seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares or traps around it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and by his wisdom he delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that same Poor man. I think of Joseph, a pitiful creature to be sure. And you look at his story and you think, is this what happens to the righteous? Betrayed, almost killed by his own family, thrown into prison, languishing there for years, yet in his wisdom and faithfulness to the Lord, was one day exalted to the place of great honor. And he saved two nations the nation of Israel and the nation of Egypt. 400 years later, no one remembered Joseph. No one. Egypt was not a nation under the rule and reign of Christ, but they were blessed by the righteous actions of a poor, wise man. He's not the only example. We see these episodes in Israel's late history, throughout the history of Israel. We see it in the days of the judges. We see it in our day. Isn't it ironic that the person who speaks with the greatest common sense is the person who is most often run out of the room and you go, am I on crazy pills? Are they on crazy pills? What's happening? What Solomon is talking about is living in a world that does not value The wisdom of clear, biblical wisdom. Just knowledge. What comes from knowing God, knowing how he has made the world, and knowing how things work. And that wisdom is a precious resource that often goes unheeded by the world and even by the church. Years ago, and I would recommend this article to you, in 2009, Carl Truman wrote an article called The Nameless One. And in it, he says this. Therefore, in a world where excitement, celebrity, and cultural power are the ideal, it is tempting amidst the circumstances of ordinary church life to forget that this, the routine of the ordinary, the boring, the plodding, is actually the norm for church life and has been so throughout most places for most of the history of the church that mega-whatevers are the exception, not the rule, and that the church has survived throughout the ages, not just or even primarily because of the high-profile firework displays of the great and the good, but because of the day-to-day faithfulness of the mundane, anonymous, nondescript people who constitute most of the church and who do the grunt work and the tedious jobs that need to be done. History does not generally record their names, but the likelihood is that you worship in a church which owes everything, humanly speaking, to such people. I love that. that the greatest Christians that have ever lived, you've never heard of? Why would you? That God takes a mass of poor, soft-spoken, wise human beings, and he delivers a little city from strong siege works. Now, Solomon, I don't think, is talking about the church, per se. But the church is the great example of this. Satan has tried since Genesis 3.16, since he first heard the curse, and he saw his opportunity with Cain and Abel to snuff it out. But guess what? Eve had another son. And then we see Abraham and his barren wife, and she had a son. Isaac and his barren wife, and she had a son. Jacob and his unfaithfulness and his betrayal and his sinister, corrupt behavior. And he had 12 sons. And those sons had sons. And some of those sons were unfaithful. Some of those sons committed committed heinous wickedness. Judah and the family of Judah And we see time and time and time again, it is the faithful counsel of righteous wisdom that delivers the little city from the strong nation. And what the Lord is calling us to do is to see how it goes. Solomon is just saying, this is how it is. Who do you think would take credit for the salvation of that little city? Not the poor man who met with the king in council. It was the king. (laughs) But we know it was the poor, wise man. We've read the story of Esther. If anything, Esther is a beautiful example of how the righteous flourish and the wicked, the, the, the trap is sprung on them. And Mordecai, who is Mordecai? He is a poor, wise man who saves an entire nation from genocide. You know, people say God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther. It doesn't have to be. Because the wisdom of God is throughout that book. God is on every single page of that book. Because a righteous poor man saves a nation from the wicked efforts of another. We, through the Holy Spirit, maybe y'all have heard this phrase, can outpunt our coverage. Do y'all know that? Maybe you who aren't football fans. When you see a man who marries up, you say, Boy, did he outpunt his coverage. That means he got something he should never have ended up with. The little church with the big mouth is constantly outpunning our coverage. In fact, the little church with the big mouth is a phrase that I first read in a book on the history of the OPC, where Jay Gresham Machen refers to the OPC as the little church with the big mouth. And by that, he does not mean that the OPC has a Napoleon complex. You know what that means? Like the little dog is the meanest dog in the bunch. It's got the worst bite, not just the bark. He doesn't mean that the OPC is to be brazen, to be brash, to be arrogant. But what he means is this. We're small, but what we have is the truth. And you know what the truth does? It saves little cities from big siege works. And let's say this. Adam and his wife, he named her Eve, when he heard the promise and they had a child and he said, her name is Eve, which means mother of all the living. And from that time, two. And from there, multiple from that upper room where you have the apostles hiding because they don't know what's happening because their rabbi has been put to death by the Romans and the Jews. And he says to them from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the other ends of the earth, you and I are here now because there are poor men in small cities who utter wisdom and there is salvation. The church is that city. And you and I need to listen to the wisdom of the scriptures no matter who delivers them. And today the church is enamored not by wisdom or poverty, but by what? Not hair gel, maybe at one point, but the guy with the slick back hair. The guy with the big congregation, the bigger, faster, famous. We are not immune from the draw of celebrity. But when we do this, we betray the reality of God's sovereignty and death. That the race is not to the swift, nor is the battle to the strong. And God can use any to deliver, so long as they speak truth. And so this is why Solomon says, wisdom is better than strength. It isn't strength, it's better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised despised, and his words are not heard because the world doesn't really honor strength. The world honors wickedness. And so, brothers and sisters, when you go out into the world and you, like a poor man, seek to declare to the city how we can be saved from the coming hordes, of unrighteousness, there will be those that look at you and say, you're crazy, and you still have to speak up. It is we who will save the world because we have in our chests and in our mouths, in our hearts, the wisdom that brings deliverance. Is this not what Luther said? One little word shall fail him. Satan comes against the church and we need speak only Christ. Do you know who saved the Western world? Christians, do you know who built the Western world? Who saved many Romans? Who brought peace? Who brought scientific establishment and endeavors? Who built the world that is good? It is not the pagan. It is the Christian. And guess who takes the credit? The wicked. They rewrite history and they write God out of the pages. Why? Because they delight in folly, not wisdom. It means that their lives have to be lived under the lordship of Christ Jesus. And so verse 17, here is serious application, pointed, personal application, Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. There's the principle. Listen to the soft-spoken truth teller. Do not be enamored by the shouting. Here, shouting isn't just noise. It's The attractive, alluring speech of the wicked woman at one end of the street while Lady Wisdom is calling from the other. It's Hollywood. It's influencers. They shout because they have nothing to say. It is empty, vain, wretched rhetoric. And so we come again to verse 18, or we come to 18, which is sort of a a repetition, at least in the first part. Wisdom is better than strength. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. You and I, brothers and sisters, have greater power than all the nations of the world. But we must do what? We must proclaim it. We must proclaim it. Because the alternative is what? What? If wisdom is dangerous in the right direction, folly is dangerous in the wrong direction. Both are powerful, but wisdom brings life, folly brings destruction. So how do we turn about the tide? We are resolved to speak, 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 speak truth, speak truth, speak truth, knowing that we may not get credit for it. And in fact, we probably won't. But by God's grace, what will happen is people will be saved and God will be glorified. We have a weapon here that no nation can match. And in this arms race, the Holy Spirit has no competitors. Let's pray.